somebody stuck a microphone in front of your face and asked, do you pray? What would you answer? Pew Research does a fair amount of study on religious trends in America, and they published a survey a couple years ago and concluded that 55% of Americans would claim to pray regularly. That's interestingly uh, down 3% from 10 years ago. It's broke out by the different groups, and if you want to know what they are, you have to sit a little farther forward. But the evangelical community is a little higher The one that really surprised me is the atheist community still 1% prayed. I'm not sure exactly why that is, but if you go by age, the older you are, the more likely you are to pray. And I don't know if that's because you more understand your need. I don't know if it's because you have more time. I don't know if it's representative of where we're headed as a society. Men tend to pray substantially less than women, and the more educated you are, the less likely you are to pray, and the more money you have the less likely you are to pray. Sir, if you're a wealthy, educated male, prayer probably isn't at the top of your list. But let me change the question just slightly. Not do you pray, but how often should you pray? The answer to that question might not be quite as straightforward as we would like. As you go through scripture, you could go to passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in which Paul is kind of throwing out these popcorn commands. Be joyful. Give thanks in all things. And the shortest verse in the Greek language, it's actually just a single word. Growing up in the King James, it was pray without ceasing. The NIV translates it pray continually. But is Paul somehow encouraging us that we should spend every moment of every day on our knees in prayer? Well, if you go just a verse or two forward, he says that we shouldn't be idle, and I suspect if your boss catches you on your knees praying, he might conclude you're being a little idle. So uh, David, David in Psalm 55 throws out an interesting perspective. He'll say that I pray evening, morning, and noon. But before you conclude, it's just three times a day in Psalm 119. He also says, I pray before the sun comes up, and I pray at midnight. So David evidently did it five times a day. Should you pray five times a day? There are religious traditions that require five prayers a day. Well, what about Daniel? Daniel only prayed three times a day. We could go to Jesus, and the only time we find Jesus praying is after the sun goes down or before the sun comes up. So should we only pray at night? This morning, I would like to open our Bibles to the book of Daniel, and we, as we begin 2022, are putting aside the book of Romans for a couple weeks, and I would like to contemplate the subject of prayer. If you were here last week, we went to Psalm 33, and we contemplated what exactly does a prayer of praise look like and David praised God for his amazing character his amazing creation and finally his amazing control this morning I'd like to go back to maybe my favorite character the man Daniel and in Daniel chapter 9 we have truly one of the great prayers in the Old Testament and it begins with a statement that it's in first year of Darius son of Xerxes a Mede by descent who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that doesn't mean a whole lot to many of you. When exactly did Darius reign? And over what kingdom did he reign? Why does Daniel set the context of the prayer? 
Well, we're not going to take the time this morning, but Daniel begins uh, probably in his early teens, ripped from his homeland and taken in 580 or 605 to the land of Israel. He will stay there for the full 70 years that Babylon is in existence and then falls. And chapter 6 is actually after Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire is gone. And Darius is given rule over Babylon under King Cyrus, king of the Persians. See, I I think the reason why Daniel sets the prayer when he does is he wants to tell you this is near the end of his life. And I think in order to really understand Daniel's prayer, it's helpful to get just a bit of background to who Daniel was. I could give you a summary but I came across the spoken gospel. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but they have dramatized many of the passages of both the Old and the New Testament, and they have about a four-minute summary of the book of Daniel. Despite what it looks like, God is in control, and that's good news for a conquered kingdom like Israel at the opening of the book of Daniel. For Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had come and laid siege upon God's promised land and his chosen population. Israel's temple was plundered, their land was sabotaged, and their king Jehoiakim was made a slave in Babylonia. But this was not the only way Babylon wreaked havoc on the kingdom of Israel. They also captured their nobility, their wisest, and their most capable, one of whom was a man named Daniel. Yet, the most surprising statement we come upon is not that the temple's holy ground was trampled on, or that its holy objects were taken to a pagan temple in which they did not belong. It's not even that evil Babylon conquered the holy land. The most surprising statement we find is that it was God himself who gave Israel into their enemy's hand. And this is really what the book of Daniel communicates as a whole, that even when the worst events imaginable begin to unfold, someone is still on the throne. Because despite what it looks like, God is in control. For this destruction was already foretold. For Israel and their king had committed all kinds of evil. They had defiled the temple, neglected orphans and widows, and even built and worshipped false idols. Sin was on their throne and needed to be overthrown. So God sent them a prophet named Jeremiah and through him promised that he would send the Babylonians to demolish them, to punish their sin, to bring about their destruction. But God's people didn't listen. They refused their opportunity for repentance. And so from God's land, they were evicted. Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon to serve their king, to worship their gods, to become Babylonian down to the bone. But Daniel knew that even though Nebuchadnezzar was in power, God was still on the highest throne. And so God rose Daniel to a place of prominence in order to show that he alone reigns over every king. It is God's kingdom that will remain after all others have been overthrown. And he made this known through Daniel and his friends by a series of miraculous events. 
Daniel and his friends refused to eat the unclean food offered by the king. But God's control made it so they grew fat from nothing but water and greens. The king was driven mad by a dream no one could interpret accurately. But God's control made it so this unknown mystery was seen by Daniel clearly. Daniel's friends were thrown into a furnace for not bowing to the king's golden image, but God's control made it so not even their clothes were singed by the embers. As King Nebuchadnezzar's power increased, he became proud and boasted of his strength, but God's control made it so the king became like a wild beast to show that God is truly over every empire's highest seat. The king's son threw a feast and drank wine from Israel's holy objects which Nebuchadnezzar had seized, but God's control made it so the writing on the wall which only Daniel could read spoke of this king's downfall by the Persians and the Medes. And finally, Daniel was thrown into a lion's den for praying to God when it was forbidden. But God's control made it so the lion's hunger was overwritten. Their mouths were shut to show that no matter the power, kingdom, or position, God has full dominion. The book of Daniel reminds us that irregardless of what it may look like, God is in control. And thus, Daniel, in chapter 9, throws out this amazing prayer. Let me just read it for you. It, it reads, In the first year, Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes, our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God, or kept the laws he gave us through his servant, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your laws and turned away, refusing to obey. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the word spoken against us and against the rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned and we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, 
Turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayer and petition of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. For a few moments we have, I, I wanna look, because I think Daniel presents an incredible pattern for prayer. One that I, I think we would do well to uh, emulate. He begins with preparation. He says that I, Daniel, understood the scriptures according to the word the Lord had given. I'm not gonna take the time this morning, but this opens up an interesting rabbit trail that would be worth some energy chasing. Am I supposed to pray for things that God has already promised to do? If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 25, you see the prophecy that Daniel is referring to. We don't really know for certain exactly how Jeremiah got to Daniel. Just the timeline, Daniel came in 605, Israel would be entirely destroyed in 586, and in that interim time, there were two more exiles that came, two more caravans of people, and Jeremiah never does make it to Babylon. He ends up being taken captive to Egypt. But somehow his writing gets to Daniel. Daniel recognizing it as written word of God recognizes that God has promised to deliver his people in 70 years, which by his calculation is any day. Do I pray for the things that God has already promised to do? If you were here when we were in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, there is this constant tension between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. I, I believe without question that God is in absolute control, but somehow his sovereignty doesn't remove human responsibility. In fact, I think as you study through scriptures, it is common to pray God follow through with what you have prophesied even though I'm absolutely confident he will. But the second thing that really hits me is Daniel's prayer comes directly out of his study of God's word. May I suggest that the greatest tool in improving your prayer life is deepening your study of God's word. The more that you are in God's word, the more you will understand God's word, God's will, God's way. And I am convinced it will greatly shape how you pray. Amen. Daniel doesn't just simply pray. He spends some time in God's word preparing himself. And then he does a, a couple things that, in all honesty, kind of go over my head. I, I'm guessing most of our heads. Okay, fasting I get. If you come to the, the New Testament, Jesus talks about the importance of fasting. I, I would suggest fasting is a really important spiritual discipline. It's one I'm guessing some of us don't practice very often. 
the Pharisees fasted two days a week, and they did so to demonstrate their great spirituality, and so I hope it doesn't become an empty discipline. But I think there is tremendous value in giving up food so that you can pray. I'm guessing most of you had something to eat yesterday. In fact, I'm guessing most of us have already had something to eat. Let me ask you, when was the last time you were really hungry? Daniel, earlier on in the book, is going to talk about fasting for 30 days and then praise. See, I'm convinced when we're told to hunger and thirst after righteousness, most of us really don't know what hunger feels like. Oh, I'm guessing some of you right now have stomachs that are grumbling and you're beginning to feel hunger because we're getting close to that mid-morning break when you normally have a, a coffee or something. But may I suggest there is real value in setting aside a day, a couple days, a week, to give up food so that you truly understand what hunger feels like so that I might know what my hunger for God should feel like. Daniel fasts, and then he gets out his sackcloth and ashes. I'm gonna really go out on a limb, and I'm going to guess none of you have sackcloth at home that you pull out often, and a bucket of ashes that you put on yourself before you pray. Now, I know that some of you grew up in traditions where once a year you would go and on Ash Wednesday have ashes put on your forehead, but that's about the extent of our experience with ashes. What in the world is this sackcloth and ashes? I don't know. It's something that you find in the Old Testament. You don't find it in the New Testament. But every time sackcloth and ashes is mentioned, it is always in connection with the desire to turn from a sin and seek God's forgiveness. I'm not suggesting you need to go out and buy yourself a burlap sack, cut some holes in it so that you can wear it next time you feel like you need to pray and get yourself from somebody who has a fireplace a nice big bucket of ash and pour over your head. I'm not suggesting that. But I am wondering, do we spend any time preparing ourselves to enter the presence of God? I've showed this video before, but this is a, a computer model of what the first century temple would have looked like. And the reason I wanted to show it is because if you notice the stairwell that's going up there, the stairs are not equal distance apart. We have ADA regulations that every stair has to be so many inches and so wide so that people can walk without tripping. The temple took the exact opposite approach. They had varying widths of stairs and varying heights of stairs. If you go to Israel today, you can see some of the stairs that they have remade, and they're intentionally different widths and different heights, and the entire philosophy was no one should rush into the presence of God. You should come in deliberately, contemplatively, recognizing that you are about to step foot in the most sacred place on the planet. Now, I'm not talking to the trustees to get them to change the stairs into the building so you trip every time you come in. That's not my desire, but let me ask you, what prep did you give yourself before coming this morning? 
If you read anything about professional athletes, you will find that the night before their great activity, they have certain schedules. In fact, I remember when Tiger Woods was at the height of his golfing career, I, I read an article that he would rent a house and the first thing he would do is have the bed removed from the bedroom and his own bed brought in place because he never slept in anyone else's bed because he wanted to make certain he was well rested so that he could perform his best. Do we approach church the same way? Did you take special care last night to make certain that you were well rested so that when you came into God's house this morning, you were ready to hear and to worship? I have for several years been sending out an email on Friday or Saturday, and it's certainly not the world's greatest email, it's not the deepest email, but it is my hope that you will spend a few moments contemplating what we're going to be talking about on Sunday, because I am convinced you will never get what you ought to out of worship or prayer if you haven't taken time to properly prepare your mind and your heart to enter the presence of God. Daniel, before he says a word, has fasted, He's put on his sackcloth and his ashes. He's opened God's word. And then he begins with this amazing prayer. He begins by saying, I pray to the Lord. And I wanted to just stop there a second. One of the struggles that I don't think we fully comprehend is Daniel was taken from Israel and was intended to be one of the wise men of Babylon, which meant he had to adopt the language and he had to understand all of the religious connotations of everything in Babylon. In fact, his name was changed. I, I, I know that most of you, when you talk about the fiery furnace, you talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't like those names because they were an intentional change of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's name to remove all remnants of Israel and make them Babylonian. Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar. And you will read Nebuchadnezzar calls him that, but Daniel never calls himself that because he was not a worshiper of the god Bel. He prayed to Jehovah. Anytime you see the word Lord in all capitals, it's not a mistake, it's not an editing error, it is an intentional reminder that this is the covenantal name that God gave to his people Israel. And Daniel, despite all the pressures, all of the, the outside events, never accepted the gods of Babylon. It was Jehovah he prayed to. And then he pauses in adoration. If you were here last week, we talked a little bit about praise, and I could have used the word praise, but I've got a really nice acronym I'm gonna end up with, and so we're gonna jump to adoration. But Daniel is going to praise God for being the great, and the NIV translates it awesome. The King James translates it terrifying. See, I, I fear that sometimes we become more familiar with God than maybe we should. That he is a great God. A God who you might want to fear just a little bit. I, I don't know if you've seen any of those movies set in medieval Europe where somebody is brought in front of a king and the king is sitting on the throne and the king asks a question and then he says something to the effect of choose your words carefully. They might be your last. 
Because a king had absolute power to remove your head for no reason and no one could question it. You did not speak flippantly with the king. Daniel understands that he is entering the presence of the king of kings. He is entering the presence of the one who spoke and everything came into existence. Please, I'm not trying to suggest you should cower in fear, but I think we need to be careful that we understand whose presence we are entering. The creator of the universe, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenants. Yesterday, if you were at the wedding, Marriage is maybe the great human covenant where two people enter into a covenant in which they pledge their loves, their loyalty, and their lives to each other. To think that the creator of the universe enters into covenants with me, with you, is beyond amazing. He is a loving God, and Daniel, throughout the prayer, is going to constantly refer to a, a number of praise and adoration. He just never gets over this amazing, great, and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. As he comes down to the end, he is a righteous God. He, he is the Lord. Our God is merciful and forgiving, and it would be worth our while to spend a fair amount of time contemplating the character and the nature of God. Can I encourage you, before you get to your requests, to spend a few moments and contemplate to whom it is you're asking. See, I, I fear that sometimes prayer becomes a glorified letter to Santa Claus. Here's my 12 requests, God. I'll be waiting to see the answers. When we are entering the presence of the most awesome creature in all the universe, and he has invited us into his presence. Daniel is so amazed by this God, but before he enters it, he pauses and he confesses. Why was Daniel confessing? Remember, this is the same time frame as Daniel chapter six. Do you remember how Daniel chapter six goes? Daniel chapter 6, uh, Babylon has ended, the Medo-Persian Empire has taken over, uh, Darius is placed over the province of Babylon, and he chooses his cabinet. As he begins to choose his cabinet, he finds guys who primarily are Persian, but for some reason he adopts Daniel. Daniel suddenly begins to rise into places of prominence, and the other people in the cabinets of the king are jealous of Daniel. He's a Jew, he had been in Babylon, why in the world would the king want this guy? And so seeing politics hasn't changed, in 2,000, 3,000 years, we find dirt. We're going to sling some mud. We're going to find something against this guy to embarrass him, to make sure that the king won't trust him. And so the administrators and the satraps try to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men say the only hope we have to embarrass him is to make the worship of his God illegal because we absolutely know nothing will stop him from praying to his God. So, so Darius, how about we have this new law that you say nobody can ask anything of any gods for 30 days because they knew Daniel would continue to pray. I don't know about you, but I don't think people would have to look very hard in my life probably your life, to find some things they could make fun of you for. They couldn't find any in Daniel's life. 
In fact, to make it even more amazing, Ezekiel, Ezekiel is back in, in Jerusalem. He's writing contemporary to Daniel, and he's saying that God is going to come judge the land. In fact, we are past the moment of salvation. In fact, if the three godliest men that have ever walked the face of the earth were to come, it still wouldn't be enough. Let's see. Who are the three greatest men? Okay, there's Noah. There's Job. And let's not forget Daniel. Daniel is one of the few characters in Scripture that we never read a failure about. And yet Daniel is confessing? I I, I would suggest that even though Daniel is an amazing man, he is still not a sinless man. If you were with us when we were in Romans chapter three, Paul is very careful to point out that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God as they ought. And even Daniel needed some confession. But what's this we stuff? If I may take another rabbit trail, Daniel is confessing the sins of his people as much as his own sins. Is there a place for me to confess the sins of my people? Isn't confession only an individual exercise? What's interesting is you go through the Old Testament, there are numerous examples of leaders confessing the sins of their people. We saw one last week. As Moses is on Mount Sinai, face to face with God, he hears of the, the rebellion, the drunken orgy, the, the idolatry that's going on, and Moses goes down, and God says, I'm done with them all. And Moses intercedes for the nation of Israel. You could go forward, and Hezekiah does much the same thing as Sennacherib, king of Assyria, comes and is going to destroy Israel. Hezekiah goes to the temple and falls on his face and confesses the sins of his people. Nehemiah does it. Daniel does it. Have you done it? When was the last time you confessed the sins of your people? We live in a nation that is not pursuing God as it ought. Do we confess the sins of our people? Have you even considered it? Can I challenge you to think about it? Daniel confesses the sins of his nation. And I love Daniel's confession because confession, in order to be a true confession, confession is a fancy word for simply meaning I say the same thing about an act as God does without excuse, and without blame shifting. If we had time, we could go back to Genesis chapter three, and in Genesis chapter three, Adam commits the very first sin, and if you remember what he says to God, he says, you're right, I ate the apple, but she gave it to me, and you gave her to me. It's not really my fault at all, God, it's yours. And we do that all the time. I know I shouldn't respond that way, but if you didn't make me mad, I wouldn't. I know I shouldn't do that, but come on, when I'm tired and hungry, that's how I act. Confession never has a but associated with it. It is always, God, I was wrong. We could spend the rest of the morning examining some of the things that Daniel confesses. We've sinned, we've done wrong. We have been wicked and we've rebelled. We've not listened to the servants. 
your servants, the prophets, and this is one that I would love to pursue, but I don't really have time, because we oftentimes think of sin as only those things that we do wrong, not so much the things we fail to do right. He's confessing not something he did wrong, but something he failed to do right. He didn't give enough time to listen to the prophets. We're uh, covered with shame and, and we have sinned a- against you. We have rebelled against you. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the law. All of Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey. Daniel begins with adoration. He goes to confession and then he thanks God And no, that verse isn't a mistake. He thanks God that God punished Israel. Doesn't that seem a little strange to you? Why would he be thankful that God had brought disaster upon his people? As a parent, one of the things I didn't always do well is that when you give a command, an expectation, and send out a consequence, If you don't follow through with that consequence, you are showing your children your word can't be trusted. See, consequences, as uncomfortable as they may possibly be sometimes, are a reminder that your word is trustworthy. Several years ago, I read a book entitled uh, Daddy, I Blew Up the Shed. It's a Christian author who is a humorist and has a very bizarre view of life. But one of my favorite stories, one I would not recommend, is that as an elementary kid, his mom got really frustrated and said to him, if you do that again, I'm going to tie you to the, the, the clothesline and put you in the backyard. And so he had to decide, would mom follow through? She did. And he shares how that all of the neighbors came and thought that she had lost her mind, but all he could think was my mom keeps her word. Now, I'm not recommending you tie your kids to the clothesline. Please don't misunderstand me. But are we people of our word? God promised clear back in Deuteronomy and several places in the law that if you follow other gods, I will come and destroy your land and my house and remove you from Israel. And he was patient and he was long-suffering, but Daniel thanks God for following through with his promise. But not only is he a promise-keeping God, he is a powerful God. We looked at it last week, said I don't want to spend any time on it, but the greatest demonstration of the power of God in all the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's the resurrection of Christ. In the Old Testament, the greatest demonstration of power was God bringing Israel out of Egypt, defeating the army of Egypt without Israel lifting a single finger. And he says, you, God, brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and you are a powerful God who answers our prayers. I would suggest the difference between adoration and thanksgiving is adoration is praising God for who he is. Thanksgiving is thanking God for what he's done. And may I suggest that we ought to be more thankful? I don't know if you've noticed or not, but Daniel has spent almost 15 verses and hasn't even gotten to his request. His request is pretty straightforward. Turn away your anger and look with favor. I truly believe 
our prayers would be far more effective if there were few requests and a great deal more of adoration, confession, and thanksgiving. If you were here last week, I challenge you to begin each morning this week with a praise. I won't ask you how you did, but can I throw out a new challenge for this week? Would you take Daniel's approach to prayer? And as you fall on your face, as you get alone in your quiet time, to prepare your hearts by reading his word, pausing for a moment to adore the God who loves you. Make certain that you are willing to confess honestly and openly the sins of the day. Thank God for all the many blessings he's already given you. And then throw out one or two requests and see what happens. Father, I I thank you for Daniel. I thank you for this amazing prayer. And God, I, I do ask that you might teach us to pray. For it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.